This is One North Stories. Our goal here is quite simple. We provide hyper-local, brand-based storytelling at the intersection of science, technology, and business here in Singapore with a global perspective. We are starting with a launch series focused on technology startups, and then plan to take the podcast broader, telling our stories, your stories, about the Singapore deep tech ecosystem. Whether you work as a venture capitalist on Sand Hill Road or in Southeast Asia, already doing R&D in Singapore, or perhaps a student dreaming big about technology, or someone in between. Join us to learn about the exciting technology being developed in our labs in Singapore, their translation journeys to market, and the inspirational people coming together to make yesterday's dream reality. If you have future episode ideas, segment ideas, or want to partner with us on this exciting journey, please get in touch. Our contact details are in the show notes. These are our stories. We hope they inspire you to create your own. And now, on to the show. One sentence to describe about us, we are deep tech venture creator for the universities and for the research institutes. It takes an entire village to build a deep tech sound. Let's say it's too niche, the tech itself can service only two customers in the world. Then perhaps I say licensing would be more uh, appropriate approach. So the first thing we look out for is the market size, whether it's big enough or not. The role of a CEO will change over time, but a founder is always going to be the founder of the company. If you're taking venture funding, you need to build a business, not just a product. This bonus episode is from a June 2023 fireside chat hosted by ASTAR Central. Gustavo Liu moderates a conversation with Clarence Tan from Origin Ventures and Jean from Cocoon Capital. The focus is on deep tech investing from a VC perspective. After introductions, they discuss the ever-changing field of deep tech, concluding that e-commerce is not deep tech, what they look for in investments from a technology and a founding team's perspective, how to talk to VCs, the importance of building a business and not just a product, and the changing role of the CEO and other C-suite personnel at different stages of the company's growth. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Hi, everyone. So we've got like the whole A-Star department here. Is this, is this all of A-Star? I'm afraid no. <laughs> this is probably the most people I've seen in the past three months. <laughs> Amazing. I'm going to be grilling them today. So I'm going to be asking some really hard questions about why VCs are choosing the teams that they choose to invest in. Perhaps we can start off with a brief introduction with, by the VCs. I've known Clarence for, what, seven years now? Yeah, since we were in other institutions, we've been involved in quite a number of deep tech spin-offs and, and projects in other ecosystems. And then Tong is somebody I just met, and he's very involved with Cocoon Capital. But, so can we have maybe Clarence sort of start off with an introduction about yourself and Origin? Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for the invitations and a lot of familiar faces over here. Harry, I think he's more qualified than me. I wanted him to come in and you know take over me. I knew him for quite some time also in ASTAR Central. Then uh, of course I'm a researcher like uh, Professor Wang. You know, okay. Nice to see so many familiar faces again. I think wow, Alan also sitting behind. Alan is the how to say is a partner in crime. We are doing a lot of deep tech venture creation in ASTAR. So I work closely with him as well. So okay, Origin Venture. We are a basically a venture. We are not, I mean, the joke is always say that we are a VC, but not a VC. We are a venture creator, but we are not a venture capital. 
right? Because why we say that? Because we create deep tech startup from the universities and from the RIs. So basically what we do is from zero to one. That means we will go in, we have the team, we put in our pre-seed investment and we work with the professors and the researchers to get the startup up and running. Then we'll bring them into the venture building phase whereby you take us about maybe 18 months to 24 months, some even longer, 36 months before they can hit the Series A. So typically from zero, we put in the pre-seed and followed by pre-A or A round, right? So this will take about 18 to 24 months. So we will make sure that they get to Series A or pre-A, whereby Kukun Capital, I mean, user, usually we pass the deal to the VCs like Kukun Capital, they'll take it forward. So we do the zero to one and the one to 10, we lead it to the accelerator, the incubators and the venture capital take it forward. So we are the so-called the deal generator. So one sentence to describe about us, we are deep tech venture creator for the universities and for the research institutes. So this is what we have been doing for the past five to six years. So 2017, we started Origin Venture. Before that, I did my first startup in 1993, more in the more in the normal tech space, the software space, because my background is com science. So I, I did a lot of internet stuff, a lot of, of software startup. So in 2017, I decided to go into deep tech. This is how I started Origin Venture to look at investing originated from the universities and RIs. Tested about 34, 34 deep tech from ASTAR, from NUS, from NTU, and from Harvard and from ETH. So these are the so-called some of the investment we have done over the past five to six years. Some of them have has reached Series B. The furthest company I pushed to up to Series B, they are planning for maybe IPO in about one or two years time in Tokyo Stock Exchange. So just a brief summary of Origin Venture. Thank you. Hi, my name is Tsong. Thanks for having me today. So I'm investment director with Cocoon Capital. I joined about five years ago as employee number one. So from day one, I've been involved with working with the portfolio companies as well as sort of handling the deal sourcing. Um, and as a VC, you know, we try to take a slightly different model. So like a hybrid model between the current VCs that you see as well as the venture creation model. So Cocoon is an early stage venture capital fund. We invest in seed and pre-seed enterprise and deep tech startups. So we are based in Singapore. We invest around Southeast Asia. And our portfolio today is about 43% deep tech. But how we you know, find a hybrid model is that we typically invest in only up to six companies a year and we put in sort of significant check sizes for the pre-seed slash seed stages that you know most startups would expect. So we do up to about a million dollars per deal and then we work closely with the founders of the companies to get them to the Series A and beyond. So we can follow on at the later rounds, but we would then you know, be slightly less active in the later stage companies. So that is typically the model that Cocoon takes. So for myself, I do work more closely with the tech companies from the deal sourcing all the way to the active portfolio support. So yeah, happy to be grilled on anything, <laughs> anything that you can imagine. I'll be friendly. I'll be friendly. Okay. So no, but thank you so much for being here. I mean, this is one opportunity that I think many of the, especially as a deep tech founder, right? To be able to hear it directly from the VCs themselves, right? What is it that works and what doesn't work? So one thing that I'm very interested about is because when founders are looking to fundraise, it's important who they are approaching and understand what is the motivation behind the, the investor's decision when, when it comes to who they want to pick, right? So Clarence, what would you say is the DNA of, because you are the founder, and, and what makes the DNA of origin um, from a founder's perspective that they should be aware when they are submitting a, a fundraising deck to you? Okay, so there are two different parts to the question. One is that what is our DNA, the other one is what we are looking out for for deep tech, so-called early stage startup, right? So our, our site, I think when I set up Origin Venture, there are three objectives. Basically, one is to groom the next generation of technopreneurs. It's always good to see budding entrepreneurs, technopreneurs come on board and 
startup, you know, in the ecosystem. Second one is to commercialize deep tech IP from the universities and from the RI because this is the main point. Back in 2017, I recognized that there are more than maybe about 97% of the IP development not being commercialized. So this is a very big gap that I thought I can value at by trying to bring the IPs out from the lab into the commercial world to solve business, business pain points. So the one is basically is to uncover all this jam in the universities and bring this opportunity not only just to the investors but to the corporate as i mentioned earlier on, corporate to solve their business pain point so these are the three objectives why we set up the, the dna of origin on the entrepreneur side to ask them to be a ceo of the deep tech startup is very tough right so normally you try to build a team around professors together to form the startup so the dna of all this c-suite team that we go put in in place even though sometimes i don't expect professors to be very entrepreneurial i mean to be honest right so, but the founding team the guy they're going to push the company forward. I think one key thing that I look out for is the entrepreneurial mindset. I mean, they have all the necessary skill. All my deep tech founders are mainly they have their basic degree. Some of them are PhDs, some of them are masters. But one thing I look out for is the entrepreneurial mindset, and they must possess this mindset in order for me to say, "Come on board and help the company." Other things I can train, but the entrepreneurial mindset and the and the characteristic attribute this is tough to inculcate from day one. I will come back to that. I will be asking you about the entrepreneurial, the, what makes entrepreneurial, right? But first, Tom, from your side, Kokun, what is that DNA and how do you choose who to invest in? Yeah, I think for us, we have a, a tagline, which is investing in founders who dare to change, right? And I think essentially you can't get more daring to change than the tech because I would say the tech, that, the, the frontiers that you guys are exploring essentially do push the ability of what we can do as you know, as a country and as a company, you know, as a people in general. So technically, that embodies why we look at e-tech. I think then in terms of speaking as to what we look for within the company when we, when we sort of appraise the company for potential investment, it is at the stage that we come in at, you know, which is pre-seed stage, there's not a lot of commercial sort of like numbers or, you know, a lot of contracts that we can look at to say that, oh, you know, potential customers are already paying for this, right? So we look a lot at the founders, a lot of the people within the company, the backing the company as well. Essentially, we're not looking strictly for the best qualifications. We're looking for relevant experience. We're looking at the relevant skill set. And at the end of the day, we're also trying to work with people who want to work with us because we invest in six companies a year. So every investment we do is an opportunity cost objectively. And when we want to work with founders, we need to make sure that you know along the path of doing due diligence that you know there is a lot a good back and forth that you know our feedback is either taken on board or you know it's countered you know with you know, proper justification and things like that. So basically looking for a healthy relationship. But at the end of the day, what we also get out of that is to understand that because with most startups, things never go to plan. Right? You can have the most perfect budget. But tomorrow, something will change, your interest rates will rise, some VC that wanted to invest will pull out, and then you know, think that a spanner gets thrown in the works. So we're looking at founders who will also have the ability to adapt the way that they run the company and the way that they approach R&D and the product development as well. So founders for us are the most important because anything commercial, you know, it's easier to handle with founders who you know, we believe in, that we can work with, and that you have the capability to adjust accordingly. Yep, fantastic. So I will come back to the founders and the entrepreneurial topic that, that it's, a, it's a hot topic for. But I, I also am curious because we are in A-Star and we've mentioned deep tech several times. How do you define deep tech? What is deep tech and what is not deep tech or not deep tech enough? Okay, there are many versions of deep tech, uh, so-called definitions. I think to origin, I think basic two things is must be scientifically, we call it backed by scientific research, engineering, engineering 
innovation, I think these are the two basic things. And of course, the professors and the PhD must done many years of research in the particular domain. And last but not least, if you can, defensible IT. I think this is what we define deep tech as. What is not deep tech to me is like the things like carousels, things like maybe grab, things like the marketplace. This to me is not deep tech, but it's, I would say it's tech. So for me, deep tech is, as I say, backed by scientific discovery or engineering so-called novelties. This is how we define it. So if I had a carousel founder here and they found an algorithm that was researched under A star and they matched that together, then that would constitute as, as uh, would that fulfill the requirement as, as deep tech from a fundraising standpoint? I would say a bit of gray area for us, but we normally try to do a little bit more with the hardware, not solely software. That means, if, I mean, I invested the first A star, AI company spun up from A star back in 2017, they are in the AI as a services on the platform to enable developers to adopt AI on their applications. That was back in 2017. So moving forward, I think we focus a bit more on, uh, I mean, on a little bit on hardware kind of stuff, right? Like for example, advanced material, bamboo composite, the 2D lens, quantum encryption, encryption chips, you know, the, the, and the maybe simulator material. I mean, more in this area rather than pure software. Why? Why hardware compared to software? Is it, is it more like because your internal thing capability to, to do the due diligence? Or is it more because of the, the you know, it's, it's actually something tangible and it's, it's that, that can be researched? And, uh... Sure. I mean, based on my experience, but I've done too many software startups, right? so I know uh, software, most of the time, it cannot be patented, right? you, know, you know what I'm trying to say? So, if, yeah, you want to protect it, uh, quite difficult sometimes because you have, you have to really do a forensic to make sure that the, the software is purely a copy of yours, right? It's not quite tough. But hardware, I think, easier. In a way, you can file patterns and discovery of new material. I think that is more defensible than software, right? So the, that's why you want to get a bit more involved in the hardware aspect rather than the software side of it. So by IP, you mean pattern as one of the core yeah, main pattern? Right. Because we are deep tech venture creator, right? So it must be backed by science, you know, IT must be defensible and all these things. I, I'm not saying no to software, just that I've done too many. I've got too many. AI companies, how many more can I go, right? So I, I move on to the other area, like agri-food tech, for example, like advanced material, bio, uh, med tech, we call it med tech. Bio, I also don't touch because long gestations. So still Pharma, okay. there's a long, yeah. long. Advanced engineering, like chipset, semiconductor. These are the few areas that we are focusing at this point in time. Fantastic. So some question, deep tech, how do you define deep tech? What makes it in and out? Like what Clarence said, very clear. Carousel, definitely not something that would be considered deep tech. So I think at the end of the day, you can always justify an investment if you really want to do it, right? But the definition of deep tech is also very broad, but typically it's a lot of what Clarence has said. There has to be a, a sentiment of defensibility around what you're doing. But that said, we also have done software deep tech investments. That's like medical tech software or even health tech software as well. And these incorporate components of AI, but at the same time, because of their approach to solving the, the issue with their certain field, let's say dentistry or you know just within the radiology field, then there's a way for them to make it defensible as well. So I think that's also the part where Cocoon has to come in because if we have seen companies that have commercialized successfully within that space, then it is my job you know, to have done the research to be able to bring value to the founders to say, hey, you know, you guys have some, you, know, you guys are working on something exciting, but at the same time, you guys can also consider sort of make patenting some part of this in order to, you know, add a lot more value to the, the intrinsic components within the company as well. So. I think that doesn't really answer the question because it really is case by case thing for us. Um, and I yeah. and I get a sense that it still comes back to to that founder element, right? It's, we can talk about the technology and how deep tech and the business and all of that, but one thing that doesn't change, or shouldn't change, are the the original founders that that started with it. So 
I want to jump on that because it seems like we keep coming back to this topic, which is the entrepreneurial aspect of the team. How would you define what makes an entrepreneur from your, from Cocoon's eyes? Uh, from Cocoon's and my personal belief, I think it's really the passion. And it sounds very cliche when you say it like that because to me, your qualification, you know, the school you, can't, you come from doesn't strictly matter, right? But what I'm looking for is someone who has a relevant experience to the work that you're doing right now. So you know, if you're going from, from, let's say, researching you know, battery materials to going to an e-commerce startup, that's not very relevant, right? But if your history has been something that has been relevant to what you're doing now, it shows me that you have had a long-term commitment already to what you're building as a company. And then subsequently, the passion you know, does come through when you work with people. You know how like, when, you talk people, when you talk to people who are passionate about things, they have that glint in their eye. You know, they, they go an extra mile just to answer a question or to do extra research and things like that. And those are the more intangible things that I think it's on my job to pick up if we're making an investment. Right? So yeah, it sounds very cliche, but to me, it's really the, the passion. Does that have to do with personality or being extroverted or introversion at all? No, I was, at least in my experience, working with the deep tech founders, it doesn't really matter because for an, an introverted person in general, if you're talking to them, to them about something that they're passionate about, they become very extroverted, right? So it's really, you know, speaking their language, which I think is something that I'll do later when, you know, we're talking about, you know, raising funds and investment. But for me, it's for me to be able to speak the founder's language as well. Okay. So it's, I, get, I get that it's like initial, the passion, that, that spark that they can show when they're, they're talking to you and they get a chance to speak to you. Yeah. Fantastic. And, and this question is, is also very relevant to you because Clarence, you, you touch, you start working with them much earlier, right? Sometimes you already start at the point where they are starting on that very early team formation journey. And you are of somebody who I've worked with, you know, for many rounds in other programs, you are very picky to the founders that you choose to want to mentor. How do you choose who is, who has that entrepreneurial spark and who doesn't have that? It's a billion dollar questions. Uh, I don't have a test that can detect that this is an entrepreneur. It's very difficult to do that because all shapes and sizes is, I would say, my experience is trial and error because most of the time when I pick the technology, I start to fund the technology. I need to bring the team, right, to be the, the founding team, maybe the C-suite team, right? Because professor, I know they don't want to do the startup because they upfront tell me, I don't want to be the founder. I want to be the CTO, whatever, non-exec. We welcome that because this is what they are good in doing. I need the team to build the deep tech startup. That means it takes an entire village to build a deep tech startup. So the team I bring in, of course, through my contacts and through maybe some kind of uh, recruitment, of course, very easy interview, right? You say, oh, yeah, I want to do it. The first question is, do you want to do it? Uh, startup is not your typical uh, corporate job, right? It's like, you know, you come to startup two years, three years, it might make it happen, it might not make it happen, it might lose your pants, you know, you are going round and round. I mean, so many problems every day about with the startup, right? So first, they say they want to do it, right? So I say, okay, maybe you have that kind of entrepreneurial mindset. This is what we are looking for. Come in and try. So sometimes we bring them in. Within maybe three months or so, we will know because it needs time to understand the guy, right? I can't just say, you want to be an entrepreneur? You say one, oh, you have the entrepreneurial mindset. I mean, most of the time, it's not true. When they taste themselves over the three months, six months, tough journey, it's like running a marathon, right? No end in sight, so many problems, funding issue, no money to pay a supplier. I mean, all these are standard start problems. If they can continue and the team thinks that he's a leader because he really possesses the kind of, uh, how to say, the kind of propensity to all these kind of, you know, problems in the startup, they can manage it and they want to do it and continue to do it. I think that's how we discover, right? And we even come to an extent where to change the team three times. 
sometimes because we have experience changing the team three times in order to get the final team that clicks well chemistry-wise with the researcher because very important that professor is not easy to handle you know yeah so i'm the inventor and i created this thing i should be the ceo of my company and you don't agree with me no, no, no. i say you are welcome to be the ceo i say can you be the ceo they say oh why should i leave my well-being job right i, I mean my first priority is researcher or professor please be the ceo of the company be the founding be the founding uh, uh, so-called team of the company so far i never get any professor want to jump into my startup only the phd the postdoc so far i welcome that this is my first priority if i can't do that i bring an external team right that's a second best to the researcher but the problem the problem is i would say i would say a problem right now i come across maybe one professor to jump into one myself after 34 deep tech startup created the first one I can probably share he gonna quit the job for Mentee and jump up to do this stuff. That's the first case so far. After Is that good or bad? Uh, I would say it's good. Welcome, okay. right? Uh, welcome. But the problem, the, the 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 truth of the matters on the ground, is no professor wanna jump day one. Yeah, and and I'm sure you've had situations where because you you start guiding them very early, right? And they haven't realized that yet how difficult it is to learn all the business and all the networking stuff. They are determined to be the CEO. And in no point of view, do you, do you force and say, you know, how do you handle that conversation if you don't think they are the, they should be the CEO of this company? Yeah. I mean, the different phase of the startup itself need different talent, right? I mean, the, the, normally the, the inventor or the founder are good up to a certain level. When your company gets into another level, you need a different uh, group of people to come in. Let's say you're reaching, let's say you're going to lead a company in NASDAQ. For example, right, you need another team of people coming and more professional people. So the founder typically, I mean, don't have many Steve Jobs, right, from zero all the way to you know uh, Nasdaq listed and trillion dollar company at the time. Not many of them. So you have to tell them the truth, right? I mean, you are certain level, certain level, you need another team of people to manage. So I would say that they are, you have to honestly tell them that. Is the Do you find yourself being a lot of time coaching this, you know, one on one and nurturing them and convincing them? Yeah, day in day out, we are to the team we are bringing our own people to guide professors the phds we are i mean day in down i'm facing the founders they have a, a lot of issue problem that they you know you're doing one startup tough enough right day in day out you got problem imagine for 34 so day in day out i'm facing all this kind of problem so coaching is like given it's not it's, it's not like you know must do it it's given you have to do it yeah. fantastic and so by the time they come they, they get funded by by origin or, or because you guys are much earlier then they come to cocoon even cocoon we consider early but not as early as as origin do you find that many of these kind of personality or insist, insistence of the inventors wanting to be the ceo is already being resolved or you also have to deal with some of those difficult conversations yeah no i wanted to add on to that as well i mean i have had to fire CEOs before, unfortunately, and some of them have been the founders at the time as well, right? So it's about balancing the conversation. And I think uh, over time, what I've realized also is that, you know, SA, you know, it does take a very different skill set at a series A and a series B. And some founders can evolve in that role. And, but there are also some founders that do have, unfortunately, that, that ceiling as well, right? So it's also then for me to educate the, the founder and at the time the CEO to say that you know, just because you are not the CEO doesn't mean that you're no longer the founder, right? It doesn't mean that you don't have a place at the company because the role of a CEO will change over time, but the founder is always going to be the founder of the company, right? So, so I think it's also making sure that their attachment to the company is not because of the title of the CEO, but more so the fact that it is your IP, it's your research that started this thing and you that really got it off the ground. So it doesn't take away anything from you as a founder if you're not a CEO. And I think the more that people can start to understand that, the more then, you know, 
I would it was it would shorten a lot of the runway to success because like even for us we don't place too much importance on titles. Most of the time it does have to be there. You know if you're fundraising there has to be a CEO. It's preferable that you know there's a there's a more there's a, I would say a stacked um, like management team. But just because the founder isn't the CEO doesn't take away things from the company as well. So well, since really you mentioned firing CEOs. There was more. I'm gonna stir that a little bit more. <laughs> Tell us a little bit. Why? What are the trigger points that push you as an investor to have to take those type of actions? I think it really depends. So on one hand, it is not. It's not a very easy decision, right? It's not like both in terms emotionally and actually getting it done. It's not easy to fire a CEO or you know to to fire a founder in that case because there's a lot of rules and regulations in place when you sign an uh, investment and a shareholders agreement that prevent this kind of thing from happening just off the cuff. So there has to be things like written warnings and there has to be things where there's been consistent proof of underperformance or you know proof that you know the, the that this person was not acting in the best interest of the company. So it is a long drawn out process. It's not overnight, you know, you have a meeting, you fight, oh yeah you're fired. It doesn't happen like that. And also at the same time it, we have to give the founder the opportunity as well to correct the ship. So for us, there are other shareholders as well. Right? Yeah, there are other shareholders that have to be notified. You know, there has to be the board that has to be convened, and then you know the actual action will be then taken from there. So it doesn't happen overnight. It's kind of like a month, one, two, two or three month long process where written warnings are given and everything like that. But most of the time, it comes down to not acting in the best interest of the company. Because yeah. you know, your, your interest is to ensure that the, the company takes is exactly. able to hit the next milestone. Right? Exactly. I mean, our interest is all aligned from from day one, right? Because we want the founders to exit because that's also when we get paid. Right. So so at the end of the day if you're running a business, you know, everybody is everybody wants to make money as well. So if there is clear evidence they're not acting in the best interest of the company or the employees as well within the company, then then yeah, I guess you know, it's not easy conversation to have. You know, send a lot of tears and a lot of like anger, but you know, you have to do it. So so if I'm a founder and I'm looking to fundraise and I'm looking to approach Cocoon Capital and I happen to be talking to you, what type of things should I prepare myself? Because ultimately you want to make money. Right, and I'm will help you make money. Yeah. What should I, what should I have it as an ingredient to 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 stand a higher chance to make this happen? I think I think I'm doing a session on this, so I think on fundraising next week, I think or something here. But it, this can be a two-hour long conversation. Right? But the way I look at it, it's that. Most deep tech founders, because of the amount of time and effort you put into R and D, and the the time that is taken to even spin off the company, the point where you're ready to fundraise, you tend to think a lot about the product, a lot about the product. Sometimes about what the product's going to be in the future, but you forget that you know if you're taking venture funding, you need to build a business, not just the product. So it's about how you're going to commercialize. You know, when and I think it alludes a bit to what I mentioned earlier about me speaking your language, so me taking the time and effort to understand what you're building as a company. But at the same time, as a founder, what you know, what will really put you at the next level is if you can speak the VC's language, right? So if you're talking numbers, if you're talking about path to commercialization, even though you know you may not be so sure of it at this time because things change. I think VCs understand that, but you know, showing that you have a path to commercialization really puts your company and yourself as a founder in a different consideration set because then it shows me that you're taking this technology, you're making, you're building a business, and then we're all gonna make money, right? That kind of thing. So, so making sure that you think about as much as you're thinking about the product, I would say that that is that is at, at the baseline what really separates the, the initial meetings, you know, as, as a, for the tech companies. Absolutely. So I'm gonna tweak that question a little bit for Clarence because the guys that come to you, they don't necessarily know what is the path for commercialization. They don't necessarily have that had any exposure to business at all. How can they, you know, but they want to fundraise, 
right? And the technology seems viable, and it is detect. It came out of A star. What are the elements that you would be looking for when this person is in front of you pitching to you? I think most of the time when you get involved into creating the deep tech startup, some of the tech are so early that there's no comparison in the market. That means we're looking at the first of its kind in the world. I got no comparison, right? So uh, the only thing that we always try to do is to see whether the market size of this technology is big enough. That means it's the that we call the tank or the storm. Or the, no, it's big enough. That means it's a billion dollar number. That's enough to support the deep tech startup because if let's say it's too niche, the tech itself can service only two customers in the world, then perhaps I say licensing would be more uh, appropriate approach. So the first thing we look out for is the market size, whether it's big enough or not, and whether we can find them a first um, in or maybe the first partner, corporate partners, because deep tech deal with B2B, we don't deal with B2C because my experience of my 34 deep tech startup are mainly the receptacles are all the B, the big, the big corporate customers, right? So the two things, one is market size, big enough to sustain the startup. Number two is whether can I find them the first very early partners to work with them to commercialize the technology, the uh, commercialization journey itself. So these are the two things. If we can check it, we normally will support it and help them to do the venture planning. But market sizing um, done by your side? Yes. Yeah. So they, they would have to present it to you guys and then the, you know, the application of that will be determined by, by origin itself. Sure, the market sizing is done by internally our analysts, but the issue is because it's so new, right? How do you know your work or not, right? So we have to do a calculated risk, the, put in some assumption that we think it will work, then that's about it, and we just go ahead with it. If I act like a VC or venture capital, you look at the cocoon, they will have 20,000 checklists, right? I only have three checklists, that's all. What are they? First, technology, whether they are you know defensible. Second is the market size and the corporate, right? Whether I can bring them the early success. Think the thing is the research team themselves. So only three, three checkbox. Simple. And then the entrepreneurial lay, lays on top of that. Right? Yeah. So I, I don't know. The market size, as you say early on, I mean, this, this is our best guess, right? But somebody had to do the zero calculations, right? If I don't get it out in the sun, it will not happen. Many of the tech in the universities at NTU, I came across many professors that IP is sitting in the drawer for six years. So he came to talk to me. I said, okay, I'll give you a shot. I'll try my best. I bring you to one then let's see whether anybody will take it forward. But so far, so good. You know, I, the, the issue is crossing the, the value of that. So one that is crossed, it's easier for most of my deep tech startup to get to the next level. So crossing the first part is a difficult part, and this is what we want to contribute and want to help. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, with your network and connections, you are able to secure those pipelines much, much faster as they were doing it by themselves. So you heard it, origin, market size, technology, the IP, very important. And if you are to cocoon, the path to commercialization, the business, that has to be, and, and of course, there's two different areas. Okay, so before I open it up to the, to the audience, I kind of want to revolve around the fundraising aspect of it, right? What is the environment right now for you? Because we just came out of COVID. I mean, you mentioned earlier you were traveling to China, having some, and even going to China now, you know, you need visa to get in there, right? Have you seen a shift in sentiment and in terms of confidence when you are when you're doing assessment and you're listening to these pitches within your, your investment team so your question is how the is last six months the yeah, last six months issues. i would say we have done this for about maybe coming to six years the initial five years is my own money i invest so i don't i'm not affected by external vcs funding fund of fund kind of stuff right the last two years we close our fund one ten million dollars and we deploy it 
for follow-on uh, investment in my portfolio. Now we are raising our second fund, thirty million dollars. I, I, I mean, I see a lot of investors from China. Singapore, I think, hard to come by. Maybe smaller one. I mean, here, here and there, there is some, there are some, but mainly are from the regional countries, from China, from Japan, Thailand, some, Malaysia, some, but very little from Singapore. So that that was my observation uh, going around to try to raise my second fund. A lot of money from China, they want to come out right because of the geopolitical situations. But the issue is getting money out from China is a big problem for the Chinese, uh, so-called the wealthy, right? They, they, they can't get the money just out like that. There are money around in China. The only thing is, do you have a very good story to bring in the money? To us, I, well, I don't think we, we have difficulty finding money. The thing is, I think we have good story. The only issue is that we need time to bring in this uh, LP into Singapore, yeah. especially from the China side. Yeah. So to me, it's, I think it's still there. Even but though it's time. Your conversations with your LPs, right? They, you, have you seen any shift in terms of interest and confidence? Or has there been more interest in deep tech, for example, or a particular type of industries that you know compared to to pre-COVID times? Okay, the two observations for the past few years. When we started deep tech venture creations back in 2017, not many people talk about deep tech because a lot of people want to deep tech, right? Back then. So only recent two years, the Singapore government are going in very heavily on deep tech investment. So there's a shift right now in terms of investing in tech, not so much on the carousel type of tech company. They are shifting their focus into more deep tech. I think the last two years are happening right now. Where we are in Thailand, same thing, the universities are looking at deep tech commercialization. They are not looking at carousel type of startup, more on deep tech, this is one. Second thing is the, the shift from the VC's investment. I realized that they are shifting from late stage to earlier stage. They want to get involved earlier into the life cycle of the startup. So these are the many the two observations from shift from normal tech to deep tech, from late stage to a more earlier stage. So this is the two observations I've, I've come across. Yeah. Is that perception that there are certain favoritism to certain verticals and it seems like the investors are actually more, you know, they're, they're indifferent for in terms of the industry. But that's the same question to Kukun. When it comes to, you know, we, took, we can look at around COVID period, before COVID, what was the major shift? Because you guys have been investing in founders for quite a number of years now. There must be some, some changes because of the macro, you know, of incidents that's been happening. I think the only big change for Cocoon was, I think prior to COVID, we had a mandate where we had to meet the founders. I think then COVID happened, but we actually never met the founders. To an extent where one of the founders that we invested in, she was doing so well that we thought it was a scam. So we actually flew down eventually to and find out and it was real, right? That she was actually doing that well. So, so I think that was the biggest change because at the end of the day, if you guys understand how VCs work, a lot of VCs, have money committed to them already, right? So they have done drawdown, they do have money in the bank. But what this macroeconomic condition has led to is them to be more selective, right? So, which comes back to, can you answer can the VC's questions? Can you speak their language? Most of the time, you know, when founders meet VCs, typically will meet first with an analyst or an associate. And these people, they also have their own KPI. So they're looking at certain traction numbers. They're looking at certain sort of like progress that you've made in the last six to 12 months that if you don't, speak their language, it's hard for them to then go back to their team and say, hey, I met this incredible startup, right? Because it's always easier to just go, oh, this, this startup has a million. But not a lot of them will take the time to sit down with you and understand how much R&D have you done, right? How much, what's the improvement in your internal testing? Have you any, had any third-party testing done for anything like this? And then that will lead to you. So speaking the investor's language tends to be very important, especially for the tech startups, especially so when you know, VCs are being more selective. At the same time, Cocoon hasn't stopped investing. We still have money out of our second fund, and we are actively going to be raising our third fund, similarly to continue investing in enterprise and deep tech. Um, so there's still a lot of dry powder. 
Right. Yeah, there's definitely dry powder. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely a lot of dry powder. It's just more selective investing. So making sure that you prepare yourself well will make a big difference when you're speaking to the VC. Okay. Fantastic. Founders, questions. The following reply is to an audience question about the role of a scientist co-founder in a deep tech startup. Okay, I can speak for Orangey because we are venture creator, right? So yeah. normally we put a team to surround the researcher or professors that don't want to do the startup themselves. Yeah, but the, the researcher will be the basically the founding or inventor, the founders yeah. of the company. They normally they own quite substantial stake in the company. Then we bring the, the C-suite team to help to bring the company to the next level, they bring the full-time team subsequently, right? So that is how we structured. So I would say, yeah, founding member, founding team are the researcher. But eventually when the company takes off, I would say that the management team that comes in to support you to grow to the next phase are also part of the founding team. Just that they are performing different roles in the company. What about the PI? Sorry? Where do you put the PI? The PI, normally they are either share, they are first shareholder. The PI, you're talking about the inventor or the... Yeah, okay. the So, okay, basically they will be the shareholder company. Sometimes they can be advisor of the company. Sometimes they can be the non-executive role of the company because the A-star doesn't allow you to hold executive position in a startup company, but non-exec. That means they focus on the development or fine-tuning of their tech and the team outside in the startup itself will be the one that's running the show to bring the, the, the company to the next level. Fundraising, operation, business, everything. So it's run by CEO or CEO? CEO, CEO. CEO or CTO? Uh, who's on the CTA? Oh, CTO. Who, who is running the company? Yeah, yeah. The, the CEO must run the company. CEO. Uh, I seldom come across CTO also slash CEO. I mean, yeah, I mean, there are founders like that. But in the deep tech startup, you need the village to build the deep tech startup. You need different people to different things. Deep tech startup, they are science. They are engineering. Why engineering? Because they need to scale. They are commercial. They are investor. So you need the whole series of resources to build the deep tech startup. So normally, sad to say, the God is fair and nobody is perfect. That means I, I'm a good CTO. Normally, I'm not a good CEO. Normally, that, that's the case. Right? If I'm a good CEO, I can sell. Normally, I'm not a good researcher. Right? So the CEO will be the one pushing the company forward. The CTO will be backing up the company. Okay. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yeah. It's perfectly okay. Yeah, it's okay. I'm not saying there's a wrong answer, but normally in our case, we think it makes more sense for the deep tech to scale to go to the next level. You need the team. Yeah, CTO do CTO role. CEO go CEO role. But a lot of deep, a lot of normal tech startup. When I started my tech startup in I'm the CEO, CTO, CMO, COO, toilet cleaner, delivery man. I everything. Chief everything officer. Yeah. So it's normal. Yeah, let's talk about team. Is one person okay to be a one man team? Perfectly okay, like you have a Steve Jobs, right? No problem. But the problem is not all of us like Steve Jobs, right? Especially running a deep tech startup, you need different skill set. You need the people to raise funds. You need people to go and talk to the corporate. You need people to go and develop the tech. You need people to go and run business. So, how, I mean, it's difficult to have one person to do the job, right? Typically, you need a team for so deep tech startup. Are you okay with one one man show or, or do you look for a team? Yeah, I mean, we have invested in sole founders before. We have invested in co-founding teams and even some, some teams with three founders. So to us, I think there has to be the intent of bringing on someone to support you. Because generally, entrepreneurship is very Especially if, let's say, you know, you're running the company on your own and if, it's, if you're single, you don't have a family, you go home at night and it's just you still in that room and you just keep thinking about businesses, which does need very quickly. So, it te I tend to find that co-founding teams do have a higher skill. That doesn't mean that we don't co-founders. What then we bring to the table is to work out a plan 
for your funding as well to make sure that you know we can find someone who is capable enough to either take on a CEO or a CTO or a COO role for you because that does take a lot of work off your plate to you know let you do what you do best. So we do not say that you know so founding so founders are not welcome, but you know statistically speaking and, and, and all of that, you know, co-founding teams and teams of three founders tend to who are raising funds at later stages. I think to further add on your question is, yes, perfectly okay. There are always instances whereby the company is very early stage. CEO is a CTO, very normal, very early stage. But you need to, when you scale, you need to think, think differently. So do I get a sense that they have to demonstrate the ability to bring somebody else to join at the very least, right? I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking about big tech startup. If I'm running a coffee shop or cafe, I mean, 1% can do it. Uh, but deep tech is slightly different. Even normal tech startup software, I started my software company in 1993. I'm a sole founder. I'm a CTO, I'm a CEO. I code, I sell, I go and raise fund, right? That is, can be done early stage. But I, when I reach a certain level, I need to bring in all my team. I need to put in the CTO. Then I elevate myself, become a CEO because I cannot do so many things. But beginning part, yes, you can. You are the only one. Nothing else. Unless you can bring in somebody and say that, believe in your vision, no pay for the next two years, they be your CTO. Good. I'll say, get it. But difficult to bring in people because when you're too early, right? no money, no vision, no tough life, who want to join you as a CTO? So you ended up, you're a CEO and CTO. And then push your company forward. You are a company, the company is you, basically. I think I just wanted to add on to that. So it's because, you know, when you are starting out, it's fine to be working on one product, but you want to make sure that you're building a company and not just a product because a company is so one product. So, I mean, there has been instances where that's successful, but if you're looking to exit your company successfully with a very high multiple, because you're creating a lot of things around the initial IP and the more products that you can create that are either complementary or more defensible, that's also how you add exponential value, right? So you want to make sure that you have a team that's capable of executing on the R&D side, on the commercialization side, and then the CEO eventually at that later stage, you're just very much the face of the company. So you are like the Steve Jobs, you know, every year, they, every year, twice a year, they bring him on stage to talk about the iPhone, but he doesn't develop the iPhone, right? He has like 12 teams behind him developing the iPhone, 12 more teams doing the production and the marketing and everything. So you become the face of the company, but that at, you're at that point when you know you're successful in delegating. So you're, that's why I was saying the role of the CEO does change a lot over time. You know, from day one, you're, you're, you're hands-on with the hardware or hands-on coding the software. By the end, at the end, when you exit, you should just be the one that people tell you, oh, hey, I've been doing this hardware for you. This is what it does now. So it will change over time, but you, know, you want to build a company, not just build a product. And with that, thanks for listening. Please hit like and subscribe wherever you are getting your podcasts. Thanks for joining us for our launch series. And be sure to look out for future episodes as we explore the intersection of science, technology, and business in the growing Singapore deep tech scene together.